Hello, I'm Diana Thomas. And I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to That Will the Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Will the Smith. Under the chilly gaze of the glittering stars, in the flickering glow of the flames from the burning farmhouse, Akan the child killer drew back his curved bronze sword to the fullest extent of his outstretched right arm. He paid little heed to the danger of exposing his chest to the short stabbing spear in the hands of the Egyptian soldier standing in front of him. He had no reason to worry. There was only raw fear in the other man's eyes, no raging defiance, no cool calculation. The Egyptian had good reason to be afraid. Akan's torso was so solid and his shoulders so broad and heavily muscled that he fought with the strength of a buffalo rather than a man. When he pulled his left arm hard behind his back, at the same time twisting his shoulders, swinging his right arm forward, and putting the full force of his body behind the sweep of his blade, it sliced through the Egyptian's neck like a farmer's scythe through a sheaf of wheat. Akan watched as the head flew sideways. The body to which it had once belonged fell to the ground, blood spurting from the stump of its neck, to lie with the three other Egyptians whose lives Akan had already taken. On another night, Akan might now have ordered one of his men to cut off the right hand of his dead enemies, to be taken to the king's palace in the city of Avaris, where a warrior could expect a reward in gold for every man he slew in battle. But there was no time for that now, and besides... He was hunting something far more valuable. That was the dramatic opening scene of the latest Wilbur Smith book, uh, written in collaboration with Mark Chadbourne, Testament, uh, which, as we're recording this in September 2023, is just out in bookshops and is the subject of our podcast today. And to discuss it, we are joined again by our producer, Christopher Wynne. Now, Diana and I have both read this book. We got hold of advanced copies. Uh, Chris, I, I think you, uh, it's so hot off the presses that you haven't had a chance to read it yet. No, I haven't. I mean, I haven't been able to get hold of a copy anywhere for love nor money. I mean, I know the release of a, Wilbur, a new Wilbur Smith book is always an exciting moment. Um, and, and in this case, particularly tantalising because I can't get hold of a copy. So I guess I'm hoping that you can feed me a few teasers. Uh, to whet my appetite without giving away too much of the plot, of course. So, what are we going to be in for in Testament? We are going, um, in, we're going to be in for a kind of a quest story, uh, um, which, which is sort of a bit like, I don't know, the treasure of the Sierra Madre or the, or the Maltese Falcon. You're searching for something, this mysterious thing. And in this case, it's something called the Riddle of the Stars. And as the book begins, people don't know quite what that is. They just know that it, it, it will empower whoever can solve it with kind of divine, destructive, or creative power to be used for good or evil. And actually, funny enough, it's not, although this book was being written long before the film came out, came out it's kind of 
Oppenheimer-esque in, in mm. the sense that, you know, you, people would, would had everybody knew there was the secret of of you could theoretically make a bomb, um, uh, by splitting the atom, and that this bomb would give whoever held it just enormous and overwhelming destructive power. And there was a sort of race between between scientists in Britain and America on the one hand and in Germany on the other. And if you imagine that sort of a quest taken back, what, 3,000 years, a bit more, three and a half thousand years, um, it's sort of like that. It's, 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 the, it's a race between, between good and evil to get to this secret power so that it can be used either for good or for evil. And I think um, that's that's exactly right. And it is a kind of a thrilling chase, uh, kind of nonstop. Um, just to kind of take a step back, just to sort of locate this for our listeners in both in kind of history, but also in the Wilbur canon. So we did an episode, a couple of episodes a few uh, weeks back about um, River God, which is the series, that's the book that launched the Egyptian series uh, and uh, Wilbur's great hero, Taita. Um, so we're still very much in the universe of River God. Um, but this is a sort of, and this is after River God, but within the confines of that series. So it's almost like a, a, a side quest within the broader sweep of, of the Taita series, um, I think. So River God ends with the, uh, the Egyptians coming back to fight off the Hyksos who've invaded. And we're still kind of in mopping up operations it's, as this book starts. Yes, the, the previous book, Titans of War, ends with... Um, uh, Taita um, leading a battle uh, the, the, the Egyptian army in a battle outside the gates of Thebes, the walls of Thebes, which is the sort of ancient Egyptian capital. And um, with the Hyksos being defeated, that's why as as this story opens, Akan is, as we discover, he he and his men are sort of sort of retreating from the battle, but they've just got something they want to do first. So yes, this takes place. So it's, in other words, it's, the story is almost you're kind of wrapping up. The, the, the sort of thread of the Hyksos through through the Egyptian books, um, and and this is although the they're still there, they haven't yet been completely defeated. The, their capital in Avaris in the north in the north of Egypt, sort of in the, in, well, in the Nile Delta, is, is still there. It's still a very mighty city and a huge, spectacular palace and temple and stuff. But yes, this is sort of come finishing off the narrative that began with the battle in River God, in which the Hyksos first appear and destroy the Egyptian army. And now, as, as you say, Tom, that they're kind of, it's the, it's the mopping up operation, but there is still this thing out there which could, and again, as with, as with the atomic bomb, that could change the entire course of events all by itself. So until it is found, Egypt is in a state of extreme danger um, in case somebody else gets, like Akan, gets his hands on it. Yeah, and we're left in no doubt that Akan is not someone we want to have it in their hands. I, I think that's fairly clear from the... from the. Yeah, I think even from those first few paragraphs. <laughs> I think the words, I think the first line, Akan the child killer, tells you... Yeah, that, that, that really sets it up, doesn't it? It's interesting, we sort of mentioned Taita. Um, obviously, Taita is kind of synonymous with the ancient Egyptian series for a lot of people. Um, and he has led the armies in this conquest. And he does feature in the book, but he's not the protagonist here. No, and, and I think that that has a lot to do with with Taita's role in Wilbur's life. Yeah. Never discussed this with Wilbur, why it was the Taita of all his characters 
was the one he I, he sort of felt most strongly for. Um, I mean, he's a eunuch slave, which is kind of the very opposite of of what you would think of as a, as a as a Wilbur Smith, you know, hyper masculine, um, powerful, uh, free character. And yet Wilbur did identify with him, and you can <laughs> yeah. tell this because the um, the Taita books written by Wilbur, which continued right to the very end of his life, uh, were written in the first person. Yeah. Um, a question I've always wanted to ask. Do you think Taita embodies the the different sides of Wilbur in the same way, perhaps, as Sean and Garrick Courtney do in When the Lion Feeds? Yes, he does. I, let's look at it through his work. Um, if you go back to When the Lion Feeds, his very first novel, not only does it set up father-son tensions, but of course it's the two brothers, Sean and Garrick Courtney, who represent, I think, two sides of Wilbur's character, which are the, you know, the, the hunter and the adventurer, but also the bookish little boy who was introduced into the wonders of literature by his mother, as Garrick Courtney is, who had a very hard time at school, as Wilbur did, and indeed Garrick does. So there's always this vulnerability uh, that kind of underpins the, the, the very powerful um, sort of testosterone-driven drive, and I think brings a humanity and brings, a, 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 yes, and enables female characters to have a femininity. And 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 I suppose Taita is kind of the a sort of symbol of that side of Wilbur's character in, in the way that any of his Courtney heroes are an embodiment of another side. And so, yes, I mean, it, to some extent, I mean, all authors, if you have a character you particularly fall in love with, I mean, of your own, that's because that character is is speaking to you and also speaking for you to some extent. And and clearly, Taita literally spoke for Wilbur because it, it was all written in Taita's voice. So so yes, there 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 has to have been a very powerful emotional and psychological connection between between author and character there. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. As we said, Taita now uh, is not the um, the focus of this story. He um, reminded me a bit of Gandalf, actually, um, in that he sort of comes in at the beginning, said, oh my gosh, there's this terrible thing that's about to happen. You have to avert it. And then he waltzes and he says, but I've got some other stuff to do, so I'm going to go yes. off and do that. Uh, and I'll leave it with you. That's a great comparison. That's a really good comparison. It really is. And because also, and you could say that, that so, so what has happened in these books is that, is that a new character has emerged. And I never, if it's either P-I or P-A. I, I read it as P-A. Okay, P-A. P-A. P-I-A-Y. Yeah. And P-A is this, is, is sort of, and is sort of a, a Baggins character. Yeah. Um, mixed with a sort of sorcerer's apprentice. Yeah, He's very a much. young, he's a kind of young, um, abandoned child who, who, whom um, um, Titus has really brought up and, and has sort of and, and one of the things that happens in the book is it's sort of a coming of age in fact all well, the three series are in which P.I. is sort of he's kind of a little bit of a scoundrel and a rascal but he's, he sort of has more qualities to him than he, even he knows although of course Titus spotted it so, so the book's kind of show him growing up and and that happens also partly through the leading female character in this story 
whose um, whose peer's lo lover Misa, who was a slave whom he first bought and then immediately freed, because he only he bought her in order that he could rescue her and be close to her. And and they have a very powerful relationship that plays out in quite a complicated way through the story of the book. And so yes, they do become they become exactly as as the as where the, the four the four adventurers are in in the Lord of the Rings. That's a really good comparison, Tom. That's absolutely right. Um, the PA becomes sorry, Taita becomes Gandalf. Yeah, exactly. Played by Ian McKellen, no doubt, in the upcoming movie. <laughs> I was imagining more Ben Kingsley as Titus, but uh, but anyway. Yes, no, actually, well, Ben Kingsley. That's that's very true. Yes, yes, Sir Ben Kingsley. Sir Ben Kingsley, indeed. Um, yes, yeah, so we've got Pierre and Misa, um, who are our kind of uh, protagonists here. And as you say, the is interesting because whereas so many stories and 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 Wilbur's books start with you know the the lovers apart and the story is how they come together. Here they start and they are absolutely blissfully happy. Um, constantly jumping into bed with each other, absolutely can't keep hands off each other. Um, she is definitely the brains of the outfit, and PA is more yes. kind of the man of action. So they they complement each other really well. Um, and you sort of think, well, what could possibly go wrong? And of oh. course, <laughs> this being a Will Smith book, things do go wrong. Um, and and, and, and Misa also has because there's something else is happening in these books, and it's happening even as Wilbur is writing them, which is the the line between. Um, historical Will, river god is is pretty close as we were discussing um in 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 the, in the episodes around that you know is fairly closely tied to to egyptian history yeah i mean obviously there's a there's a there's a, there's a huge great narrative i mean yeah wilbur takes liberties with it he's not trying to write a book that is directly a, 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 but it, but but it, it's it's fundamentally a book a book of historical romantic fiction as the books have gone on, they introduce a new, slightly fantasy element, so that which is entirely in keeping with the mindset of people in the ancient world, who believed very strongly that the gods walked among human beings, that, that they weren't sort of just up on Olympus or wherever or in heaven, that they actually were active participants. They took sides in the Trojan War, for example. And they actually partially caused the Trojan War and the and and the Aeneid and all the various mm. things that flow from it. So so the, so that in um in in Desert God, I think I'm right in saying, Taita meets the goddess Ishtar, otherwise known as Inanna or Astarte or even Aphrodite. She's the goddess of love in Babylon, and discovers that he himself is the child of a Titan, Minotius. And and what happens also, therefore, when we get to Testament, is the gods are very, very present throughout the book. So that Akan is a devotee of, of Seth, who's the sort of god of war and disorder. And and the gods themselves, and, and, and Misa, for example, has this cat, Bast, who in some sense is a sort of like a, I, I love Bast. She's one of my probably is my favorite character. She's my favorite character in the book, and 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 she's this kind of magic cat who's kind of an embodiment of a goddess. I mean, I, yeah, I, no, I quite great. like cats myself. So, so 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 you have this element of of the melding of of the fantastical mm -hmm. and and the real, which is both, as I say, historically 
in keeping with the mindset of the people, but also is also, I think, in keeping with kind of trends in, in books at the moment. So you have wonderful books like Circe, which is a story um, um, of, of, of the, of the uh, nymph goddess Circe who meets Odysseus, among other people, in, in Greek mm, myth. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, you think of the number of stories now which are about vampires and whatever, but which are set in a historical context or Highlander or something. Um, so I, I, and I, I think one of the interesting things about the story is, is that the, is that the, the way in which new forms of storytelling and new genres of fiction are being woven into the kind of conventional idea of what a Welber Smith book can be. But it, and as I say, he started that himself with the way he developed Taita. Yeah, I think I mean it's a bit present in River God, um, and it kind of carries through here, where he's always giving you a bit of an out. Like if you absolutely will not believe in this, you can't believe in in gods and magic. Then there's always it's like I'm not going to force you to do it. So um, the, uh, the 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 priests of, of this cult who who keep on appearing, they've they've got sort of magic dust, yeah, um, which is there's an implication it's some kind of hallucinogenic. Um, there's a lot of the kind of the, the, the milk of the blue lotus, which I, I think is some sort of opiate. So there's there's enough there where you can say, oh, they're just high on drugs or whatever. But it's 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 a very yeah. blurred line. I mean, and, but I mean, even for example, the blue lotus thing, there is the flower the flower of the blue lotus is a type of water lily. It's, I actually looked this up. It's Nymphae ceruliae, and it does actually contain. Um, a bit like about poppies there there are substances you can derive genuinely from the blue lotus mm. that are that aren't narcotic um and and i think that there's always i mean so there's this question like if if people are seeing visions is that like a psychological thing that's happening to them or is it something real and i mean and I, as i was reading and i was thinking to myself well if you think about the christian story both in the Bible and in the development of the Christian faith, the, 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 the nativity story, the story of Christ, as told in the Bible, has a, has a mythic element, which is exactly like Greek myths. In Greek myths, the gods were forever impregnating mortal women. And in the nativity story, mm. obviously Mary is impregnated by by God. I mean, the, Jesus is the son of God in that story. And then subsequently, a myriad saints see visions of angels or of God or of Jesus or of the Virgin. And, and, and in the time in which they live, these visions are taken to be entirely real things, even if nowadays more skeptical, less religious minds interpret them as psychological phenomena. So again, as you say, Tom, the reader can take that, can make their own mind up. Are these people just, you know, for example, if somebody's in the depths of the of the um, Great Pyramid um, and is ingesting all sorts of stuff as they breathe, and they then see a vision of of a, of, of the god Seth coming towards them, are they just stoned, or is the god there? And and you can take it either way. I mean, personally, as a reader. I just think if the world that you're creating is sufficiently engrossing, this is after all fiction, then you just go with it. And I, I, I kind of, 
after a while thought no i'm just gonna i'm just gonna accept this book on its own terms and i'm going to accept the kind of the structure of the of the, of the characters mortal mm. or human on their own terms and it makes and it works perfectly well on that basis yeah and i think you're do you think um do you think taita as a character believes in the gods because he's so knowledgeable of what's going on and he understands the sort of magic behind everything do you think he would believe in the gods i mean he's definitely not above um using people's belief in the gods to his own end so again in river god there's the bit where he's has to um lustrous has got pregnant by um her boyfriend whose name i forgot tanis general tanis Tanis, that's right she's got pregnant by tanis but she's married to the pharaoh um and so taita has to sort of persuade pharaoh that it's his baby and he first of all to kind of um delay the marriage and then to persuade pharaoh that it's his baby and he does this by having a bunch of highly convenient dreams um mm. and which are told with a sort of very knowing wink so he's definitely at that point not above manipulating credulity in the gods to his own ends but at the same time as you say he goes and he meets ishtar so at that point presumably he's um he's, he's sold on the idea i i think i think um i mean for reasons we can come on to perhaps later i've been i've been giving a great deal of thought to taita recently i i think he i think it's kind of a bit of both i mean because he has an extraordinarily long life and he's very and he's and he's travels very widely he sees how human beings relate to create i mean if if you believe in in a world that is created by some kind of spiritual or divine power it can only be created once if you see what i mean so that power there's only one power that could have created it but human beings have had across time all sorts of different ways in which each separate culture has described or accounted for or created myths around what was in fact one event and and i think of it that taita has as it were a perspective on the way in which humans try to relate to gods and create their own expressions of gods whilst understanding that there's a kind of a limit to the number of different gods there can be if that makes any sense um so and, and ishtar, ishtar is a very good example of that because as a matter of kind of fact historically she was a very ancient goddess in terms of human beings worshiping her and she's originally worshiped as inanna and then she acquires a kind of what would now be described as gender curious notion because she somehow merged with a male god and then becomes ishtar and then by just linguistic reasons ishtar mm-hmm. becomes astarte and then the phoenicians who worship she's been first worshiped in kind of mesopotamia and then up in assyria and then she moves to um the, the the mediterranean coast of tyre and the phoenician cities and then they take her out into the greek world and she becomes aphrodite and then of course she becomes venus and what's interesting is that venus is the morning star and the, um i think it's, it's, it's venus is the is the is the is is the, is, a, is is seen in the heavens where of course is a planet as a star and she was worshipped as that that is the star she was worshipped as right at the very beginning so you get this you get this real merging of different ways of expressing a faith 
in the same goddess mm. from different cultures. And I, I just think that Taita has that perspective on it because he he can stand back having been there for so long and have a perspective which which those of us who only have a very short time on earth don't have but i think he does believe fundamentally he, he's a religious person he is a, so now he's a person of faith fundamentally he does believe that i mean for example the thing that the thing they're chasing the riddle of the stars he believes it's real. He believes yeah. that there is a power that can that that can link you <laughs> to the gods, and which can be used for good or evil. He doesn't doubt that. Yeah, and, and nor do any of the uh, participants in the in the quest. No. Uh, speaking of whom, we should probably talk about some of these other participants. Uh, I was um, reflecting uh, just this week actually that. You know, Wilbur books are always stacked with with uh, baddies, villains and antagonists. Uh, and this book is positively overflowing with them because it's not just, this is not yeah. a two-horse race uh, in terms of yeah. going after the, uh, the, the the Riddle of the Stars. So we've already met Akan, the child killer, uh, who pretty much does what he says on the tin. Uh, but he's not the only one uh, who is... Uh, Literally, he has he has killed a very yeah. significant child. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a big part of kind of what defines him. Uh, but he is not the only one uh, in the race for this uh, this this mystery. No, I mean, there's, he has a, his 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 brother is also involved in it, who goes under the under the kind of um, under the kind of norm de plume of Seth, the brother of Seth, who's 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 the god that they they are both devoted to. And and there's and there's a kind of classic um, Wilbur-esque trial of the of the brothers, one the one weak and the other strong yeah. and and there's also this yeah group of guardians the brotherhood of apis um the sons of Ape. Brother, sons of apis brotherhood of apis. yes yeah. sons of apis sons of apis sons of apis that's right yeah and they and they are kind of they're similar to, they're, they're kind of what they're doing is they're guarding the riddle so that only someone who is truly worthy of solving it can solve it they kind of they're winnowing out the wheat from the chaff and by the end of the book Kind of, and then there's, and then there's a sort of priest figure, um, who who hooks up with Akan, and by the end of the book, what it finally comes down to, is an extraordinary sort of contest beneath the Sphinx, because because one of the things about the book is that, and I think this is also an interesting thing that 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 the book is set in about 1500 BC. It doesn't say that, but it would have to be. That's roughly when the Hiskos were defeated. By which time, the pyramids, the Great Pyramids and the Sphinx and the First Pyramid were already a thousand years yeah. old. And that comes through. Which is just an astonishing mm -hmm. thought. That's come, that comes in the book really strongly. The fact yes. that even for PA, our hero, yes. um, when he's wandering around the pyramids, um, these are ancient, ancient monuments. Um, Absolutely. And in the human mind, you know, a thousand years versus 4,000 years as it is now, doesn't really make much difference. You know, it's it's just incredibly old. Yes. Um, and, and I think that the, the book really sort of uh, captures that sense that these are antiquities even in ancient history and exactly and there's a mystery around them because yeah. even even the at that point the egyptians don't know any more how they were built than we really do yeah um and and there's something and they don't think that they could reproduce them any more than we really could or we probably could but goodness be difficult um and so and so one of the kind of 
absent but very powerful characters in the book is Imhotep, the great architect who created the pyramids yeah. and who had by that point taken on himself a kind of semi-divine role in Egyptian mythology. Yeah. Um, and in order to solve it, the mystery around them, the characters go deep into two of the pyramids and also the sphinx itself yeah i mean one of the things i loved about this book is that um it's really leaning into all the kind of real classic egyptiana so mm. you want pyramids you got pyramids you want the sphinx you got the sphinx i think there's one point though there's there's even a, a mummy effectively or a, 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 a quasi mummy who comes and starts chasing after them it's really uh playing with a lot of the uh, the sort of the the tropes of, of, of kind of ancient Egypt, but doing it in a really kind of fresh and original way, um, which which I, I really enjoyed. So can this book be described as a thriller? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about it is that, is that, is my point about it, it, I mean, listen, it's an interesting distinction between an adventure and a thriller. Yeah. Wilbur's books, are, as we as we were discussing just the other day, I mean, they are they are definitive adventures. They are absolutely in the, you know, in the, we've talked about many times there in the kind of Ryder Haggard tradition of great big socking adventure stories. This is a slightly, this is this as I say has 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 things about it that are more in common with a contemporary thriller, like the search for something which could be. You know, you think of all those all those movies you've seen where the hero has finally got to the gigantic bond or somebody is and the and the bomb is ticking. You know, and they've got fifteen seconds and just to, mm. it's that kind of it has it has it has that sense of a pace and that sense of a structure and that sense of what I like to call one damn thing after another, which I love. I love yeah, writing. Yeah. I love writing. Whereas where you think that you've you've got to the end of a sequence, no, there's more and there's more and there's more and there's more. So and so, then just as you get to think you at the end of it, everything flips and everything you thought you knew is reversed. Exactly, exactly. So 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 it does have, I think, the pace on, and the and the, and the, and, the, and the kind of underpinnings. And this is what I. So it's kind of a very modern book in that respect. So it has the fantasy elements, has the thriller elements. And and it's just, but but you know, goodness knows, Wilbur was a page-turning writer, so it always has that thing of of keeping you moving, and and of and and also I think of taking you. I mean, as you were saying, Wilbur's books take you to places you would love to go to, and and and, and ages you would love to have lived in, mm. and costumes you would have loved to have worn, or whatever it is. And this does exactly that. I mean, you go into the necropolis outside of Memphis and you go into the depths of you know, temples yeah, and tombs yeah. and you're underground and, or you're w way up in the Great Pyramid or you're deep underground under the Sphinx. And there are extraordinary things in there. And, and, and although they are to some extent mm -hmm. fantastical, people are still discovering. I mean, like, for example, there are, there are extraordinary kind of I think I'm right in saying, underneath the Great Pyramids, under the, well, the Giza, there's a whole structure of underground canals and all sorts of things that people still don't quite know, you know, how they got there or what they were for. And so, yes, this, 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 this kind of stretches what you might call mm -hmm. the archaeological record to the absolute limit and beyond. But then, you know, so does a Bond story. So does and 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 the thing is, you're just moving along at such a pace that it kind of it yeah. it takes you with you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If they're about the books we've done so far on the show, we've done obviously when the lion feeds. Uh, we've done when a, Fal- uh, a falcon flies. Um, Blue um, River God, obviously. Um, they're all Wilbur in kind of massive epic mode, um, and and you know absolutely on peak form. And this is this is Wilbur in a, in a sort of different key. This is him. Um, I mean, it's it's a shorter book, uh, and it is just as you say, it's one damn thing after another. It's go from the you know pretty much the, the first page to the last. It's a hundred and thirty. It's a hundred and thirty something thousand words. So it's it's by no means a, a novella. I mean, it's quite a it's quite a yeah yeah. But but, but compared to like eight hundred pages um, yes. of uh, um, of Falcon Flies, um, sure, it's, sure. It's, it's definitely um, slimmer than that. And uh, yeah, I mean, and there's bits of it that uh, actually we talked about sort of different adventures. Actually, the the form of the quest, this, this, the quest for the Riddle of the Stars involves um, a certain number of you can say archaeological based um, puzzles yes. uh, and 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 kind of uh, problems they have to solve uh, and you're, in, the, in those scenes you know you're very Indiana Jones adjacent um, <laughs> try, trying to solve pu- puzzles you know there's a bit where people are being lowered into a pit where there's some mystery at the bottom of it and they come out kind of chewed up and uh and, and dead um and yeah so so it's got that wonderful again that fun of um uh, of sort of racing around in ancient ruins with fiendish traps and uh impenetrable puzzles that's true but i think it's also worth pointing out just to go back to to misa PA, PA and Misa, that there's a very strong emotional seriousness, by which I mean to say there's a relationship there, which I, you know, I'm pretty sure I certainly did, that readers are going to care about and invest in and hope yeah, for them. Yeah. And because, as, as Tom was saying, what seems to be an idyllic relationship is kind of an it's it's sort of it's pervert it's it's other people kind of I was going to say perverted and distorted, but at the same time, you realise that there was a fundamental problem at the heart of the relationship, which I've kind of sort of is evident in what we said, but I won't make it explicit. And so, so that grounds the whole story. As much as there's rushing around, and for Pi, he he is as driven as much by his longing because he and Misa get separated and his his longing to be with her and to be reunited with her is as important to him as the objective the kind of higher objective of solving this riddle so you never forget that there is there is this very profound emotional romantic drive that he has and that matters to him so as much as you're having a great time mm-hmm. you're also really hoping that that can work out because they're nice characters you're kind of they're they're sort of she's really interesting and clever and insightful and and he's sort of he's a kind of lovable good-natured puppy if you know what i mean he's sort of <laughs> yeah he's like a he's a young guy he's a kid he's like you know, he's just like a slightly goofy, but not entirely hopeless young guy who's who's kind of sweet and adorable. Um, yeah. So there's a love story in here as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dri- driving it very much. And I'm getting vibes of um, the sword in the stone. Is that right? In so far as, as, as P.I. sort of, I suppose he kind of, 
it's it he sort of ends up to some extent yes i suppose you could say that he's like the kid who pulls the sword out of the stone and turns out to be to be the king um he doesn't he doesn't become the king but yes there is a sort of slight element to that yeah i think in terms of in terms of the kid who the kid who turns out to be special yeah i think but um in terms of the relationship we talked about sort of some of the the complexities of that i think one one of the things that's really fascinating about this book and actually makes it much more than just a kind of fast-paced romp which on one level it absolutely is um and you're going to get your kind of death-defying um adventures and battles against the odds and evil villains but it also goes pretty deep uh, into some pretty challenging psychological territory. Mm. Um, so the relationship between Pierre and Missa being being one of them, but uh, also actually Pierre's relationship with his father. Yes. Um, and Pierre has always, he was abandoned as a child. He wasn't, I sort of, at the start I thought he was orphaned, but he wasn't orphaned at all. Yeah. He, was, he was abandoned by his parents and left mm. for, for Talita to find. Um, and he's never forgiven his parents for this, as you wouldn't um and and never known his parents and he judges them very very harshly for that and then i think it's hopefully not too much of a spoiler in the course oh, no, of no, novel, no, a, can't, a man... no 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 it's gonna be too much of a spoiler it's too much of a spoiler <laughs> i i think well I, okay in the, so I'll, I'll i'll rephrase um in the course of the novel pa is, is things happen that force pa to reassess his relation or his views of his father yes uh, and and the yes. ways in which he has judged him and some more of the than choices once. fathers more than once yeah and 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 the, the choices that his father has made and the, and the way this happens is that pa is put in positions where he has to make some really really yes horrible choices yes and the novel i, I kept on expecting uh the, the story to kind of you know you, you give um you give pa a, a, a horrible dilemma and, you, and you're waiting for the the get out for the the third way to reveal yeah. itself and actually um he doesn't have to choose because actually he can find but a way that, around that, and, and it doesn't at all it absolutely kind of go, follows through with that and, and goes to those kind of quite challenging places it, it's a tough book in that sense i mean as you say it doesn't make easy choices in all sorts of ways and it, it doesn't necessarily always give you the happy kind of conclusion i mean just within as you say within certain uh within even even as we're, as the story is going on you think there's got to be a way out of this, and no, there isn't a way out of that because in real life there isn't. Yeah. And and bad things have to happen, and PA has to make choices between okay, I really, really, really need to solve this riddle, and I really, really need to get back to Misa, but the riddle is most important because the lives of the whole of the people of Egypt could depend upon this. Yeah. And as you say, he has to make some extremely brutal choices. And that continues right up to the end of the book. Yeah. I remember there was a novel published a few years ago. I think it's called Behind Her Eyes. Um, and it, the, it was released, the publicity for the book um, uh, suggested using the hashtag um, WTF that ending um, <laughs> because it, it had a really shocking ending. And I, and I sort of felt that you could maybe uh, repurpose that hashtag for this because, again, it, without wanting to spoil it for Chris, who hasn't read it yet, um, the the ending is 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 not what you expect. No. And I just, I, th I think that's what gives, so that's another element you're saying that, that gives a layer of of real seriousness. And I mean, and and, and to the point where, I mean, Pierre has to make choices along the road, which do lead to 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 harm being done, and he's and he bears that responsibility. Yeah, but he's had to make a very very tough choice, which actually 
if you think about leaders in wartime, sometimes you just, like for example, go back to the Second World War. There were times when the British, because they'd broken all the German codes, knew that certain things were going to happen, but they couldn't act upon that knowledge necessarily because that might tip the Germans off, the Nazis off, to the fact that we knew things. Yeah, that would be broken so, codes. And, and since the yeah. breaking of the codes was absolutely fundamental to the winning of the war and therefore the greater good of destroying Nazism, people were sacrificed in order that that good could take place. And and that's very much what happens in this story, that, that, that the greater good, and, and that's part of Pierre growing up as a man, is him having to deal with that. Yeah. And, and, and we live, I think, in a world, and I think it's kind of relevant to the present time, because I think our leaders are increasingly incapable of making those tough choices and of persuading people that actually life can't, you know, can't always be nicey-nicey, that sometimes you have to be cold-blooded. You have to make really, really, really hard choices. And we don't like to live in that world anymore. But the truth of the matter is those, those choices sometimes do have to be made. And that's a lesson which, which comes through more than once in this book. And, and so as you say, it's, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a romp with depth. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what makes it a, a Wilbur Smith story ultimately is that, you know, there's a number of authors who could write some kind of Egyptian kind of romp, but it's those themes of that. I mean, the coming of age theme is, is the quintessential Wilbur theme. Um, and I think this book yeah. is really, um, and lots of books purport to be coming of age stories, but they kind of soft pedal it. And this is really like, you yeah. know, if you are going to be a grown up, and so, th and so this is very much PA ha learning the really, really hard way, like to be an adult, you have to make tough choices and live with those choices. And, and the book doesn't self pedal that at which all. I, which again is, is, I mean, that's a very Wilbur-esque worldview. Yeah. I mean, just as a person, that's that's how he thought about it. i mean you know he has this very straightforward uh clear-sighted way of looking at things and i don't think that as a person he had very much time for people who just like to soft soap everything and sweet talk and yeah i, I think he he understood very very clearly about about the need for tough choices and and that his heroes were prepared to take them yeah so, to sum up, Testament is a thriller, it's a love story, it's an adventure, and it has all the elements you expect and long for in a Wilbur Smith book. Is that right? Yeah, def definitely. And I think uh, the, 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 really the achievement was I finished it um, feeling both that I would very happily pick up the next book in the series straight away, if, 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 you know, even when it comes, to find out what happens to PA. But equally, if there wasn't one, I also felt a story had you know, completed itself in a really satisfying way. And that's a real trick to actually make the story contained in itself, but also, um, you know, open out to, to further possibilities. Uh, so I, th I think it's, it's, it's an absolutely cracking read. It's tremendous fun, but also with that all constant kind of undercurrent of actually rather darker and more challenging kind of questions that sort of give it real depth beyond um, just the kind of the, the adventure stuff, which is obviously top notch. Yes, well, I'm going to go out and get myself a copy as soon as I can. I believe it's in bookstores now. All good bookstores. <laughs> All good bookstores. It's, um, it's worth it. Cool. Yes. Well, 
on that bombshell that Chris is going to spend his own money on buying Wilby Smith books, <laughs> which I strongly approve, it's um, time to wrap up the show. So it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. And it's goodbye from me, Tom Harper. That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.